0: Pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray now that as we look at your word that you would graciously be with us. I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. Uh, would you do that for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Well, I'm not sure if you've heard of um, the community called Post Secret. Uh, just heard about this from a friend, but it's an art project in which people send in homemade postcards, and on those postcards, they have to confess uh, something that they've never told anyone else, and um, this thing kind of became a thing. Thousands of postcards were sent in, uh, mailed in, um, to this kind of community thing, and uh, We began a began sort of this art project, sort of developed into the sort of largest advertisement uh, for this blog, this free blog, with 475 million visits, um, because it, they would post those confessions on there. Of course, not with the names and that kind of thing. Um, and this led to publishing multiple, um, uh, not just the volume of postcards that were published on there, but books as well, and all kinds of things, and. Uh, it became uh, kind of a funny bit because some of these confessions would be silly. Like one confession that somebody decided they had to make because they hadn't told anybody is they like going to the bathroom in the pool. Kind of gross. But this is the kind of stuff that is put up there. Um, uh, one that was not so happy was I made my cat drink bleach um, just so I could see uh, my cute vet again. Strange, weird stuff like that. Um, Lastly, there was one, that, several that got more serious that talked about murder. And so this whole post-secret uh, thing became way bigger, way darker than, any, any, than it had, had intended. And, and what it points to with the millions of folks who had sent in these things is that there is this need to confess. And so I think what, what, one of the things that's interesting about this topic, we're going to talk about confession this morning in our text... Is that while what Post Secret tells us is, well, this can start out to be sort of a, a silly, sort of fun thing. That what's deeply rooted in our hearts is this desire that something is not right, that we are not right with somebody. Uh, we have done things that we know that lay guilt upon us. And so because of that, there is this desire to tell somebody or something. There's this desire to confess to someone and as I think about this uh, sort of community project, as, as it were, if millions have a need to confess, the question that we have before us then is, what is that confession pointing to? What has the power to resolve the guilt that's there? What has the power to resolve uh, the shame even that we feel of, of the things that are going on within us? And whether you're religious or not this morning, I would argue that all of us experience this. All of us have little bitty things in our lives that we have never told anybody. Um, and we have dark things in our lives that we probably haven't told anybody. But none of that resolves us of the need to get that out and get that before somebody. But the question is, is who's that confession for? Who is that? What is that confession pointing to? And what this text shows us as we get back into our study of Hosea, as God is leading his people to... Um, to to a a faithfulness in him is that our confession is the language of loyalty as God's people because we are so broken, because we are so unfaithful. And so God wants to show us that, that the way we return to him, the way his people will return to him is by confession, by repentance. But what changes that for the christian is what that repentance points to and for the christian it always points not to ourselves not to even a a desire to redouble our efforts and do better Uh, but it points to jesus who is the ultimate ultimate who's the loyal one for us who dies so that we might be made loyal we may be made steadfast as god desires let us see that in this text of this morning as we look at the three things printed on your bulletin. Because God desires loyalty here, because he desires steadfast love, we then as his people must confess our desire to what find life or security in other things. We must confess um, our desire to think only of ourselves and not, not of God's people as well. We must confess our inability to love the Lord as we should. Because when we do that, We will connect in with that language of loyalty where we will point to the one who resolves that confession and makes us whole. But let's look at this uh, through the eyes of Israel as we begin there with that first point. We must confess our desire to find life or security um, in other things but Him. As you might have noticed in the reading of God's Word, this section starts out with the instruction of sound the alarm, blow the horn. We see that in verse 8, which would indicate to those um, who are hearing this or, 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 or reading this text um, to perhaps bear arms. Because someone is invading your town and someone is in fact invading. Um, but what Hosea is saying at this point is it's not how you think it is. Right? Hosea is not warning of a foreign invasion at this point. He is warning of an invasion by God himself. And if you look at the images here between verses 8 and 15, God says that he is the one that is actually going to what pour his wrath like water out on Israel. That he is going to be like a moth to Ephraim, which is another word for Israel. He's going to be like dry rot even to the house of Judah, we notice that we'll talk about in the second point. He will be like a lion, he says, and a young a lion to Ephraim and a young lion to Judah. I, even I, the text says, will tear and I will go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. In other words, Hosea is warning that, that, that who you are at war with is not your neighbors to the east, the Assyrians. Right? But you are at war with God himself. Now, he will use Assyria as his agent of judgment. But Hosea is making the point that that is not who you have conflict with. You have conflict with a holy God. And why? Well, it's because of what we've been saying this entire time, because of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. In fact, it's more simple than that. They entered into a covenant with God, and with that, keeping the covenant brought certain blessings and curses. And you can read about these in Deuteronomy 28. And so all of this is to be expected if you keep the covenant, these blessings flow naturally from what God has promised to do. But if you break this covenant, you bring destruction upon yourself. Everyone would know that this was coming if unfaithfulness continued in the land. What that has looked like specifically, what I want to try to unearth as, as as, as Hosea reads, is he is calling out Israel's loyalty to another king, to another nation. And he's doing that as they have gone to Assyria for protection. And remember, Hosea is likening Israel as the the bride of Yahweh. And in this metaphor, faithfulness or loyalty to him is what God wants. And we see that in in probably one of the most important texts of this book in in chapter 6, verse 6, which we read. That God desires, not sacrifice. But steadfast love, which also means loyalty, just like any marriage, just like any good friendship or any good relationship, period, we want that loyalty. But what Israel is doing or has done is they have gone and they have brought offerings to Assyria in hopes that Assyria will actually protect them. And this goes against so much that was in the covenant that God uh, entered into with Israel, his people and Hosea speaks to this, and he speaks to it in several places, but clearly there in 13, chapter 5, 13, if you look at it, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. The background points to King Menahem of Israel, which was uh, the, the reigning king for a period during Hosea's uh, ministry. And during this time, uh, Paul, or Tiglath-Pileser III, who was the king of Assyria, uh, he, he's invading nearby regions, gathering up land for his kingdom. And this begins to alarm Israel because they are what? They're right in the middle of this, if you look at a map. And this is sort of what um, the word wound has many, many meanings for Hosea, but at this point, this is the wound, right? They feel like we are vulnerable. Uh, we're going to be attacked. And so, what does the king do? What does King Men- Menahem do? Does he go back to the Lord for protection? Does he, does he trust in the Lord uh, to, to fight for them as, as the Lord has promised to do? over and over in israel's history no the king takes up an offering among god's pe- people king menahem of israel and he brings that offering to assyria and he lays it at the feet of Tiglath-Pileser the and he says you're the one who i will pay tribute to you're the one who i will trust you're the one who i will be loyal to Will you give us in exchange the, secu- the promise of security to not invade our land? And and, and he does this. And in, in fact, history shows us that um, Tiglath-Pileser third he, he built a steel or a column. Um, and on that column etched out the names of those who did pay this tribute, who were loyal to him. <laughs> uh, and you can actually go look at this in a museum in Jerusalem today. And on there is the name of King Menahem. All right, that's... It's a column, you know, That's something. That's a place you don't want your name on, to say the least. We refer to this in some ways as Israel's leadership trying to get in bed with Assyria, which would also require the approval to worship their gods in Israel's land, which is why the high places are not coming down. It would require so much, but the point of it is, is that Israel is is breaking the covenant, is is showing loyalty to another. And the irony is, is where they thought that they would find life, where they thought that they would find security, would ultimately be where they find destruction. Several years ago, there was a data breach from a company, and I won't name the company, but the actual business of this company is specifically to facilitate affairs, to facilitate adultery among married people. It's like a dating app, but the whole point of it is, is just to kind of, let's just get right to it. You're looking to, to whatever, we will make that happen. It's incredible. Perhaps maybe you've even seen this advertised. Uh, but several years ago, their data records were hacked. The names of all of their members and those they had met because of the app, all of it became public. And so there's a list of aliases and, of course, addresses that went to those names and numbers. And, and all of this surface and all these names and all these people, uh, all this came to light. And some of these folks on this list were high, high profile celebrities. Some of these folks were CEOs who ended up losing their jobs over this. Uh, not to mention uh, how many uh, couples divorced, uh, finding out about the infidelity of their spouse. It was devastating. It was a list also, you would say, you wouldn't want to find your name on. But this is why Hosea is telling Israel to blow the horn and to sound the trumpet. They are at war with a holy God because they have been loyal to another. And not the one they vowed to be loyal to. The unfaithfulness of Israel to Yahweh in this scene that we just read about is comparable to any spouse going to another man, going to another woman, or going to any other object for things that they had vowed to only receive From the one that they made vows to. So, if you're wondering, like, where's the jump here going from security to talking about, uh, you know, affairs, this is the metaphor running throughout the the entirety of Hosea for us to understand what our unfaithfulness is doing and has done to God Himself. We've got to enter into that. And so like Israel, when we break God's covenant, we break his law, we are, we, are, we are going to things that we promised we would only go to God for. So what does God do in the face of such disloyalty? And we can say a lot of things. But this is where verse, six, verse 1 in chapter 6 comes, comes, comes to play, where Hosea says, Come, let us return to the Lord. And it's this breath of fresh air in in, in the midst of this book with all of this uh, talk of judgment and talk of tearing and talk of, of wrath. Come, let us return to the one that we promise to be loyal to. In other words, let us confess and return to trusting in God that he will be our protection, that he will do what he has promised to do. Yes, God might tear us apart, as the text says. He might tear us apart like a lion in his judgment and in his discipline. But he's the only one who can heal us. See, the problem with our idols, friends, is that they promise to bring us healing. They promise to cure us. They promise to give us life. But like Assyria for Israel, like the number of things that we could, we could, we could label and lay out on the table today that our own hearts go after, they only bring Destruction. And so God's God's grace to us, his grace to Israel, is to to confess that. The language of loyalty by his people. Return to me. So Israel, confess, repent, come back to the Lord. This is how a disloyal people can be made loyal again. Can give to the Lord what he so desires. This is the first thing that we see. Because God desires this type of loyalty, Israel, we we must confess in the ways that we go after other things for security and for life. But we also see in this text, because God desires loyalty, we must confess our desire to think only of ourselves. If God desires our loyalty to him as a spouse, this means loyalty to his people as well. So while in this first point, this first picture, we see Israel going after other gods, worshiping, uh, as it were, other gods in that sense, uh, pledging their loyalty to other kings. There's something else going on here, too, that almost goes unnoticed. And it's how, God is, how God's people are responding to his people as well, which is a breach of his loyalty. You might have noticed in this section that God is speaking not just to Israel, but to Judah, as well, and you might be thinking, "Oh, wait a minute here! I thought you said in the introduction that Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom." Well, I did say that, and that's true. But we also said in the introduction that this book is for both the north and the south, King, southern kingdoms. But it was for the south in particular that heard its message and read it first, as we said, and much of its message is for them too. They're receiving this and hearing this after the northern kingdom has actually fallen. And so it has a different implication for them. Sort of the, the, the call to say, okay, you've seen what will happen for those who don't return to the Lord. What about you to the south? So what would you think when they heard? Uh, so what would they think when they heard uh, the cities listed in verse 8 there? Gibeah, Ramah, Bethhaven. Unless you check the map this morning, those are border cities in between the northern and southern kingdom. think El Paso, even San Antonio, uh, as it were, to mexico and the reason he 's mentioning these and why this would startle the readers because to us you know if Assyria were to invade, it would come in through the north, right? Canada, to kind of stick to the metaphor. Why mention these cities near the southern border? Well, God wants them to wake up as well because the battle. Is right at their door. And again, it's not with Assyria, it's with God Himself. And we see that here in verse 10 as He says, The princes of Judah have what become like those who move the landmark, or become like one who uh, move boundary markers. In the wake of the Assyrian threat, Judah has not come to the aid of their neighbors to the north, but has come to take advantage of them by readjusting the land borders. Which God has given them as their inheritance. Just one place, Deuteronomy nineteen fourteen says that you shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set. And the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess. Loyalty to God isn't just lived out in how we relate to him. According to this text, loyalty and steadfast love, what he desires is also lived out in the way that we relate to his people, his body as well. Moving those boundaries was one of the worst things that you could do to your brother, or your sister. That land was a symbol of God's love and care and faithfulness to, uh, to them. It was their livelihood. It was how they both lived in and contributed to uh, being the people of God. And to take any of it away was a stripping of a family's dignity. Consider the dignity that one would be that one would, would, would that would be taken from someone, if you were married, and someone took advantage of your spouse, or took advantage of your family. That's how God sees this. Where the northern kingdom is going to other lovers, the southern kingdom is taking advantage of God's own spouse and manipulating these boundary markers during a vulnerable time for the northern kingdom. It is literally someone coming into your home, violating your family, and you being forced to watch. God while he is calling the northern kingdom to repentance is being forced to watch as it were judah take advantage of her this is not pretty this is not g-rating stuff and god will have none of it which is why the language that we read about his wrath pouring out like water like that he will be wrought. To Judah, which means he will be the decay of their lives and souls. He will be the one that brings destruction on them. He will tear like a lion. Because of this. The, the idea of seeking security in other places. The idea of, of, of moving boundaries seems so just abstract. What's the big deal? Until you put it in the context of a Relationship. What a vow means and how this breaks the heart of our God. So in this moment that has Israel to the north as the focal point, because they are so far from God, the south all of a sudden has no room to point the finger. That's the effect. That's the point. They, just like their northern brothers, are thinking of themselves and not of the Lord and what he loves, which is his people. If God desires our loyalty to him as a spouse, this means loyalty not just to him, but also to his people, to his body. As well, in the way that we love them as ourself. So what's Hosea's message then to Judah at this point? As the camera turns, well... Thankfully it's the same as Israel's. Come, let us return to the Lord. Remember, their fight is not with Assyria right now either. It is with the holy God. And so there's only one response. Let us confess the ways that we point the finger, but are guilty of only thinking of ourselves as we publicly violate God's people in front of him by taking away what he has given. I could say, are we starting to see the picture here as we move through the book of Hosea? It doesn't matter who you are in the story as God's people. Repent, repent, repent. Confess, confess, confess. And why? Because God delights in our confession. He delights in our repentance. At this point, I I don't know why he gives us the opportunity to continue to do this. Perhaps we'll see later on. But confession and repentance is how God has designed uh, and created a way for a disloyal people to begin to be made loyal again. If God desires our loyalty to Him as a spouse, this means loyalty or steadfast love to His people is marked out by His commands to love one another as well. And so, it would be good for us uh, to consider just briefly, like how are we treating each other in this room, even? As a local church, how are we thinking about God's people? Are we more skeptical of each other in, in here than we are of our neighbors or other people out there? Which, which implies that, that we are not unable we are unable to give one another the benefit of the doubt in here. Are we prone to gossip towards one another in here instead of going to our brother and sisters? God commands. Just two simple things. That's boundary moving in God's eyes. It's thinking only of yourself. It's being disloyal to God himself because of the way you are treating his people. And immediately as we even begin to to reflect on that, there's a sense here of just like, we're just leveled. Our hearts aren't the way that they're supposed to be. There is a deep wound. We've seen how God's people are treating him by the way that they go after other gods and other nations. We see how God's people are treating each other within his own community. And lastly, we see really why all this is the case as we uh, uh, look at Israel's inability to simply love the Lord. As themselves to love the Lord as they are called to and this too, they are to confess as well. In the wake of of leveling both Israel and Judah, God goes to the heart of the problem in six four, saying this. Look at look at your text. That Israel and Judah's love for the Lord is like a morning cloud. It's like the dew that goes away early. In other words, their love for God lasts about as long as a mist that crosses your face and then evaporates to nothing. Have you ever walked out into your lawn in the morning? Maybe a field or played golf early. When the dew is still on the ground, and you notice how it sparkles and shines and sort of saturates all that it comes into contact with. If you're in relatively high grass. <clears throat> and then without noticing it, it just disappears. It vanishes. What once was there is not there anymore. That's the picture, friends. That's the picture of Israel's love for God. And unfortunately, it's the picture of our love for him as well. As we find ourselves in the story. If someone were to ask, Ryan, how long does your love last for Jesus? I would love to be able to tell you, forever. 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 What well, the Bible is trying to show me and what I want it to show you is, no, it's like a mist. Your love for the Lord is like a mist. Which means that our loyalty problem that God desires, what God desires in verse 6 as we see here is a heart problem. It's not a behavior problem. So as we look back 6-6 six, six here, what does God desire? I desire steadfast love. I desire loyalty and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God, as we've been saying, to know him, to know him through our repentance, to know know him uh, through our repentance unto knowing Jesus and his forgiveness rather than burnt offerings. In other words, he doesn't want your rituals. He doesn't want our good behavior. He wants your heart. He wants you. He wants us to love him, but our hearts won't do it. And so this is where God cries out and we enter into the tension of this text. Uh, before this, uh, right at the top of verse 4, God cries out, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? And immediately, right, the tension, the tension increases of this, this, this wrath that God is presenting to his people. But this, this angst that he has because he loves his people so much. So what do we do? What does God do? He resolves that tension. But he doesn't resolve it by ignoring his wrath. But he, does, he doesn't resolve it by ignoring his mercy either. And this is where we get to the cross. He resolves it through Jesus. The cross is the place where what his wrath is made known to the loyal one. So that you and I might be healed. So that you and I might receive mercy and you experience this tension right when you confess to the Lord and if you've been around the church long enough you know what I'm talking about how can I go to God over and over again for what I've done how can I stop our confession even in the service from being this sort of ritual sacrifice if you will that it might mean something how can I ask him to do something for me that I'm not doing for him and it's in those moments of bringing your confession to him where you meet Jesus, right? but where you see the cross, the place where God will tear and destroy, and destroy the loyal one right? so that you can be made whole, so that you can be healed. As God cries out, what shall I do with you, Israel? What shall I do with you, Judah? It is here that we begin to see that he's going to die for them. I will make you the loyal ones by destroying my son, who will be stripped and torn and destroyed so that we might be healed and cured and forgiven. And God wants us to know him through that tension. Through the, I was not steadfast to you, but will you be steadfast to me? Because that's where his grace smiles upon us in Jesus. Confession, then, is appealing to that grace, friends. It's appealing to that grace in Christ that says, not me, but him. And because of that, God no longer sees us as the disloyal. He no longer sees you as the unfaithful. He no longer sees you as the one who goes to all these other places for life. He no longer sees you as as this person, right, who, who doesn't know how to love his own people. And he no longer sees you as this person whose love for him is like a mist. (laughs) He sees you as Jesus. He sees you as the one uh, whose steadfast love was exhibited perfectly in this life. And then goes to a cross where he might be destroyed for you. And see, that is grace, friends. And as we come back around to the beginning of this question, you know... What is your confession pointing to? Our confession as a church points to one person and one person only. It points to Jesus. Because when our confession points to him, what we're saying is that we we trust and we rely upon his grace to heal our wounds. To heal the ways that we are not who we're supposed to be. And to trust that he, by his spirit, is doing what he promised, which is giving us a new heart. It's allowing us and giving us the, the ability then to love God as we should, to love others as we should. That's what grace is. Grace is what heals our wounds. This is what our confession points to. Because at the, at the end of the day, right, as your pastor, right, and you can, as your parent in this room, your grandparent, brother, sister, like, he, here's here's your word, good word to your friends. To your your children, to your spouse, as your pastor, I don't have anything for you but my repentance. That's all I have. I'm going to fail you. I'm not going to worship God the way that I should. I'm not going to think about God the way that I should. I'm going to run to so many other things in this world for life, for security. And, And in that way, all I have To offer, to give you, to give others is my repentance. That's what the church has for the world as well. To exhibit humility the confession that we are not who we're supposed to be, but there's somebody who was, let my confession point to him. Jesus. The loyal for the disloyal. The the way that you are made right with God, the way that that, where God desires steadfast love, where he desires knowledge of him, where that is found at the cross. As we ask Jesus to be steadfast for us, when we know in our hearts we are not steadfast for him. And in that tension, we receive that grace and that grace changes us and it moves us out into the world to love God in a way because we're pointing now no longer to ourselves. We're pointing to him, to Jesus. That's our work. That's our job. So we started beginning. We talked about what our confession is pointing to. And I'll leave you with that question this morning. As we, we, we could sort of sit in the midst of this tough text. in Hosea, what is your confession pointing to this morning? What is it leading you to? Is it leading you to a place of more guilt? Anxiety? Stress? If so the chances are your confession is pointing to something in you. Let me offer you Jesus this morning, as Hosea does, that your confession might point to him where true rest, where true freedom is found, where where forgiveness is met over and over and over again. Where the one who is steadfast for us when we could not be steadfast for him says, bring it to me, bring it to me. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that as we look at what Israel is going through, and we look at the places where their heart is taking them, or that you, in the midst of that, give them, and you give us the opportunity to return to you, to repent. And when we do, we read that you will come to us like the dawn. And that you will not just show us uh, yourself, that you'll not just meet with us, but you will pour blessing upon us. That you will, you will water the fields, as the text says. Would we learn to trust that more today in our confession? Would we learn to, to trust you more? Your, and, and through your grace as we experience this, uh, lead others into um, desiring your, uh, your love for them in the forgiveness that we have in Jesus.